tonight. I know it's Labor Day weekend, and uh, it's kind of the last hurrah of the summer, uh, so we all have a uh, uh, nice, although it's raining outside, so I guess it's not a real great week for uh, cookouts and camping, but I know a lot of us uh, could be other places, and so I appreciate your presence here uh, in worship here at New Life. And we're going to dismiss the children now. I think they're, all, they're already gone. Uh, those young people who are uh, uh, here for uh, their children's experience can go to that. Of course, all children are welcome to stay here uh, throughout the entirety of our worship service. Um, but there is a special uh, time for those young people from K through 5th grade. Uh, let's, as we transition now into our teaching time, uh, pray or uh, say together, the statement of faith that we call the Apostles' Creed. Uh, This is one of the earliest creeds or statements of faith. It is uh, just a vitally important and powerful uh, statement that we use as Christians. uh, When um, uh, Traditionally, when you become a member of the church, this is something we ask you to read in front of the congregation. Uh, In our New Life 101 classes, this is something we go over because there are some pretty heavy themes in here. Things like uh, what you know, what's the communion of saints? What's the resurrection of the body? Uh, what's some of that stuff look like? Uh, we talk about that. Uh, so if this is something you're familiar with, something you believe in, uh, please read it out loud with me. Uh, if this is something you're not familiar with, just read along with us uh, and start to ask some questions and uh, start to ask questions with each other because these are great, uh, great things to talk about. Things that people were arguing for several hundred years before this statement of faith came to be. Uh, So let us uh, say together the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Let us continue in an attitude of prayer. Lord, help us now remember that we stand in your presence when we come to worship. We are standing truly in your presence in front of your throne with throngs of angels and saints and that great cloud of witnesses all of those who have proclaimed your Son, Jesus Christ, who have lived, who are living, and who will live. We ask that we be humbled in your presence, but we ask that we also know that you, the God creator of the heavens and the earth, are also the God who loves us and loved us so much. You sent yourself in the form of Jesus Christ, your only Son, to live for us, to die for us, and to rise again for each of us here. You also sent him to establish your church and continue that tradition with your Holy Spirit. So we ask that now we truly be open to your word. Your Holy Spirit truly moves within us and we truly grow closer to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the final week of acting like the church and this has been the time that we really explained or explored how to be the church. So I'm going to go through kind of what we've talked about up to this point, and then we're going to talk a little bit uh, about our final week, knowing or proclaiming a knowable God. Uh, so to do this study or to do this series, we've been looking in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible with you, 
uh, or if you have your iPhone with you or your uh, Kindle or whatever you use to actually study to read the Bible, you can get that open to the book of Acts that's in the New Testament after the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, uh, and to the chapter 17. So Acts 17 is where we're going to be today. But all throughout this series, we've been in the book of Acts. The first week was called The Ends of the Earth. And we saw that Jesus, while he was still alive after the resurrection, met with his disciples and said, You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where they were, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We talked about what that meant. We talked about what that looked like. It meant truly knowing and then sharing your experience of Jesus Christ with, yes, the people close to you, but then uh, as we grow those people farther and farther away. The next week, we uh, just had a wonderful opportunity with our Seeds to Succeed. Uh, Some of you are wearing your Seeds to Succeed shirts. Uh, We were uh, active in three schools. We helped three schools uh, just get ready for the fall uh, semester. Collected over 30 or, uh, excuse me, over 40 filled backpacks that had been given to children who were in need. Had anti-bullying seminars, had a community fair, had a time of celebration. It was really a chance to be the church in action, and I think we made an impact on our community, and the community, I think, has taken notice. Um, next week, we talked about uh, that place where everybody knows your name, and we talked about these wonderful characteristics of the Acts 2 church, the very first church. Uh, we saw that they were devoted to learning and fellowship and prayer and being reverent and being in action like we were with Seeds to Succeed, sharing their resources and worshiping together. We also noticed that it wasn't a dull place, that they were a happy church, And they were a likable group of people, so likable that they attracted others into uh, their body because of the love of Christ they had uh, for one another. Last week, we had the opportunity to fellowship, uh, as I said in our thank you dinner with our sponsoring uh, congregation, uh, Roscoe United Methodist Church. Uh, But we also learned that through the help of the Holy Spirit, any conflict can turn into wonderful growth opportunities. And that's how this was born. Today, we're ending our series uh, by kind of coming back around to the very beginning. Uh, Jesus gave us this instruction to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. So how can we proclaim a knowable God, a God who we know through Jesus Christ, we know through the Holy Spirit, to people who have no sense of who God is, what God is, and no desire to be religious? That's the question. Last week, as we read in the book of Acts, there was conflict. You know, we we, we read that Acts 2 church, how wonderful it was. Everything was going great. The church was growing. Uh, They were just doing wonderful ministry. Everybody liked each other. They shared all their stuff. It was wonderful. Well, a few chapters later, there was dissent. Some, you know, some, some widows weren't getting fed. And so there were problems. And that's a good problem, you know, to actually take notice of. There were people who were going hungry. So that was the first... Uh, that was kind of the first internal struggle of the church. But as you continue to read in Acts, there actually starts to be a lot of external struggle as the church begins to be persecuted by Christians, or uh, excuse me, by Jewish authorities and Roman authorities. Uh, they actually began uh, hunting down, arresting, imprisoning, and actually killing Christians. Remember that man we talked about last week, Stephen? He was appointed one of the seven to overlook this uh, ministry of feeding the widows. Stephen was actually the first martyr of the early church. He was stoned to death. And and when he was stoned to death, there was a man there, a man who was a young Pharisee, a man who was a studier of the law of the uh, Old Testament. And his name was Saul. 
Now, Saul was a good Pharisee, uh, a member of a Jewish order devoted to what we call the law or the first five books of the Bible. The law of Moses, the the law that Moses gave to Israel um, after they left Egypt. He viewed Christianity basically as a heresy, as something apart from what was right, apart from orthodoxy, uh, apart from what was normal. Until one day, he was traveling down a road, a road to Damascus, and he had an experience of the risen Christ, and it changed his life. And he became a follower of Christ on that day, or, or through that experience, I should say. His name changed to Paul, so Saul became Paul. It's very, a lot of people get their names changed in Scripture, and it gets a little confusing. So Paul is the apostle we talk about. Uh, he was first named Paul, or Saul, now he's named Paul. All that happens in Acts chapter 9, so if you have some time, you can look in Acts chapter 9 if you're interested about that. Now, Paul had a heart for people, not just the Jewish people. Peter and the other disciples, they were ministering to Jewish people in Jerusalem. But Paul wanted to minister to Greek and Roman people, people who were not Jewish, because he believed that Jesus had called him to be a witness to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he made it his mission to travel actually a considerable part of the known world and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, as we get to Acts chapter 7, Paul is in Greece in the city of Athens. This is what he says. If you look at the 22nd and 23rd verse. So Paul, standing in the middle of their Agapagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. And I found also an altar with the following inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. That's, that's one of my favorite parts of Scripture, especially in the book of Acts, because Paul really knows how to witness. Paul really understands what sharing the gospel is all about. Now, Paul was a Roman citizen. He, uh, he understood Roman tradition. He understood uh, Greek uh, tradition, but he was also a very faithful Jew. He wanted everyone uh, to understand this. And so he was here in Greece, and later he would go to Rome. But he understood that to share the gospel, you had to know who you were sharing it to. You had to understand the community you were in. Today, he was in Athens in this story. Now, Athens, uh, by this time, by uh, 50 or so, I guess about 30 or 40 uh, AC, had really become the center of intellectual and philosophical thought. Now, several hundred years later, a man named Socrates, or earlier, excuse me, in about 300-400 BC, a man named Socrates uh, really brought what we know as kind of modern philosophy. And Socrates' student uh, Plato and Plato's student Aristotle really made Athens kind of a center for philosophical thought. And so this was a place where people were intelligent, people debated, people continuously asked, what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? What's our purpose? This was not just a, uh, you know, like the early disciples. This was not a group of fishermen. Uh, These were the ivory tower elite people of the time. And it was a pretty intimidating crowd to preach to, especially when your message was as radical as Paul's message. So what did he do in preparation? Listen to this. He looked 
carefully around. He just took notice of what was going on. So often, you know, we get in such a hurry to just share the good news, to just share our beliefs, to just share our message that we actually don't stop, take a minute, and look around. Paul knew he needed to understand these people before he shared with them this very, very powerful gospel message. So Paul spent the time, made the rounds, and he found what the key to his message is. Now, atheists will argue, and we're going to talk a little bit about atheism uh, in our, in our Mythbuster series, because really what that's talking about is apologetics or basically things people say about Christianity that we do not believe are true. And so that's going to be a really fun, uh, a really fun time. And, and the videos have nothing to do with that, but they're a lot of fun uh, that we filmed earlier this week. So atheists will try to argue that Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and other ancient philosophers weren't religious men. Uh, but if you read Plato and, and Aristotle and Socrates, which you read in Plato, uh, which I have done, incidentally, and, and own all of those if you're ever interested in just, you know, digging up some Plato, uh, you'll find that they are very, very theological. Uh, they're very religious men. Uh, not because they were Christians, because at that time Christianity didn't exist as it did uh, in, in here in these early days, because uh, Christ hadn't come yet. But they believed in something. They believed there was a greater force than themselves. Now, Greeks and Romans, in, in fact, believed in dozens of gods. They believed in an entire pantheon of gods. And you're, you're probably familiar with Zeus or uh, the, you know, the Romans, Jupiter, and, and you know, all the planets are named after gods. Um, but you know, Hercules and all that kind of stuff, that comes from the Greco-Roman traditions. But Paul came upon something. He came upon an object of worship, and it was to an unknown god. Now, Paul wasn't an idiot. He understood that in Greco-Roman society, even though they, they believed in gods, they worshipped gods, they didn't have any relationship with those gods. They didn't know gods. And in fact, a lot of those gods were kind of evil. You know, Hades and Ares, they were, they were really evil gods. You would not want to have a relationship with them. In fact, if they were around, you would want to be as far away as possible because they did some pretty terrible things. So the idea that you would know God, was very distant. And that's what Paul really wanted to do. He saw this opening. He saw that he could preach to them something that they needed to hear. So let's move into the present day. Uh, take a good look around. Not, not here, but metaphorically. If you look in our society, what are people passionate about? What are people interested in? What are the objects of people's worship. Now, I wish I could say it was, uh, you know, pe people were, you know, interested in ancient philosophy, which I am, and have a degree in, um, but that's not really a real, I, actually, I'd be, I'd be kind of excited if people were interested in modern or even postmodern philosophy, but uh, that's kind of gone to the wayside. But I can tell you, even with just a couple weeks of having our son with us, as we drive down the, the highway, we, as we drive down Perryville Road, uh, every time we pass Golden Arches, he points and makes sure that we know that that's where he would like to go. Because even at 21 months, he understands the image of those arches and what that means. So let's look around and get some kind of fun numbers. We're going to start with football. Football season's coming up, right? We're excited about football, like football. Uh, you know, I'm not as big a football fan as I am a baseball fan, but... 
enjoy football. You know, I'm, I'm a Bears fan, I, I have to admit. Not that I hate everybody who's not, although I'm wearing a Colts, I'm wearing a Colts helmet in uh, one of the upcoming videos, so you can deal with that as you can. Now, American football is the most viewed spectator sport in the entire world. Uh, actually, you may, you may be surprised by how many people devote themselves to this sport. Here's some of the statistics. Uh, the Chicago Bears. I'm, I didn't get the Colts statistics, but I know where to get them if you're interested. The Chicago Bears at Soldier Field for 2011, last year, their average attendance was 62,145. That was during the eight home games. Now, now, here's the kicker about that. That was not the most attendance in the league by any means. But here's the kicker. The capacity of Soldier Field is 61,500. <laughs> Their average attendance was almost 1,000 people more. And that can't be comfortable. I've never been to Soldier Field during a, a, a Bears game. Um, but I, I guess it's got to be pretty packed. Now, Lambeau Field, uh, the home of, of one of the other great uh, teams in our area, I'm not going to say which team, but a team. Their average attendance was in the 70,000s, 70,512. Not, not over 100% capacity, but 97%. Total stadium attendance. So all of the stadiums across the uh, United States. Total attendance, live attendance for 2011, 16 million. 16 million people showed up, paid I'm, what I'm guessing, a lot of money to go see, I mean, it, to, to go see the Cubs lose, it's two, $300. <clears throat> Not that I'm bitter about that. Now, you expand that to broadcasting, to actually people watching football, over 200 million unique viewers throughout the football season last year. That's a lot of millions of people who are interested in football. I'm not saying football is a bad thing, but people are interested in it. They have passion for it. Now the next one, let's go to the next image here. Yeah, this is one of my favorite things. I, uh, I love food, obviously. I have a problem in that area. And I love Coca-Cola. Coke is one of my favorite things. I don't think there's anything better on a warm day than an ice-cold Coca-Cola in a glass bottle. Conveniently, you know, it, or even better if it's bottled in Mexico. Mexican Coca-Cola is amazing. Anyway. I, I once said in a sermon, I love Mexican Coke, and I had, to be, I had to be careful because that also sounds like something that is not related to soft drinks. Um, yeah. So, so here are some numbers about Coca-Cola. There are 2.8 million vending machines, Coke vending machines, in the United States. We, we have one literally outside the door, don't we? Worldwide, the average person drinks one Coke every four days. That is factoring in people who have, you know, co entire communities, entire countries who have never, ever seen Coca-Cola. One, one Coke every four days. There's estimated 92 billion Cokes drank every year, and that's just Coke products. Over 600 uh, million Coke, pro or a billion, excuse me, Coke products each year. Now, this is disgusting. On average, each American consumes 11 pounds of sugar from Coke alone each year. That's, that's one of the reasons, you know, we, we are in the problem we are. Okay, so obviously a lot of people like Coca-Cola. I love Coca-Cola. There's nothing wrong with it in moderation. 
something that there might be a problem with moderation. That's the next thing. Like three people will know what that is. Yes, that is the poster to the upcoming Twilight movie. Now, in a couple months, we're, we're going to experience the Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 2 craze. Um, and, and once that's done, because that's the final movie in the series, don't worry, we still have two more Hunger Game movies and, unfortunately, Fifty Shades of Grey movies. Uh, so uh, that's a whole other sermon. But here's, here's a little bit about Twilight. Um, the numbers just fascinate me. Uh, when it comes to this, um, and I, I own all the books and all the movies, so I'm not adding to, I'm adding to this number, um, but it does fascinate me. Over 17 million copies have been sold of the original book, the first book. Uh, of the four books, over 100 million sold. Breaking Dawn, that was the last movie, part one, grossed $130 million in its opening weekend. Opening weekend. That was just the first three days that it was released. That's 17 million tickets. That's a lot of tickets. It's a lot of people going to the film. Overall, the entire, you know, the films, the books, the DVDs, merchandise has grossed almost $5 billion. It's a lot of people interested in something that's okay, not particularly life-affirming. Now let's take a look at Christianity. Not, Not as great numbers. Now some studies you read will say uh, 70% of Americans describe themselves as Christians. Um, Here's some data that that we have. Uh, In America, there are 218 million self-proclaimed Christians. I'm not saying that they are the greatest disciples of Christ, but they call themselves Christians. 174 are members of churches, and 8 million of them are United Methodists, belong to United Methodist churches. So there's some, you know, there's some pretty strong Christianity still happening in the United States. Worldwide, it's, it's a little different here and there. Dying in Europe, growing in some other areas. But the reality, and why, why we bring up and we kind of joke about that, the reality is everyone is religious. People will tell you, I'm not religious. Or, you know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, and that's garbage. People will say, oh, I'm not really a religious person. You may uh, approach maybe someone you know, a family or friend about Jesus Christ, and they'll say, you know, I'm just really not religious. But they are. The truth is, I've never met someone who isn't religious about something. The question is, what are they religious to? Maybe it's not something like uh, football or Coke or, or Twilight. Maybe it's my family or my career or my spouse or children or hobbies or entertainment. Paul's goal in this wonderful story in Athens was to take the fervor and passion people had for philosophy, that people had that religiousness that they had in Athens, and put it towards something life-affirming, something life-changing, something life-transforming. And that was the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Athens, Paul did that by proclaiming a knowable God. He did that by saying, listen, I know for years you have worshipped gods that you don't know. You've worshipped gods who are cruel and and evil. But I'm going to tell you about a God who I have a personal relationship with. A God who isn't distant, who isn't far removed, who didn't set things in motion and disappear. I mean, that's Plato's philosophy that there was a, a great divine being that created everything. 
that set everything in motion, but he was very distant, very far removed. And a lot of people believe that too. They may not believe in Christianity, they may not, uh, you know, they may not be atheists, but they believe that there was some plan, some being, some entity greater than themselves. But Paul said, I don't worship that God. I don't worship a distant God. I don't worship an uninvolved God. I worship a God who is alive and who wants to be in a relationship with you, with each one of us, the relationship each one of us was created for. So as we were uh, planning this upcoming Mythbusters series, uh, we got together in just a small group, a couple of us, and somebody asked, when was the first time you knew God was real? Because uh, two of the first questions we're going to ask is, is God real? And did Jesus Christ exist? Those are the first two weeks. I was 20 years old when I had my Oprah aha moment. You still remember that? We still can reference that? No, Oprah hasn't been on in the same way in, in a while, but that aha moment when I really knew that God was real. Now, I, I had grown up in the church, and many of you know that story, but there was a moment that my whole life changed. And it was the moment that I knew that Jesus Christ was real and that he wanted to have a relationship with me and that he loved me. And it's been real to me ever since. It's real every day. I can tell you three or four things that happened this week that have just brought me closer to Christ, that have changed my life. And that's in the midst of trying to figure out how I'm going to do morning devotionals now that I have a, a two-year-old and a six-month-old. That's in the midst of a, a, you know, the destruction of my routine. God is still working. God is still moving because it doesn't matter the stuff that I do. God still desires to have a relationship with me. But it's different for everyone. My mother has always known that God was real. Uh, I know several people who have never doubted, never questioned, never needed to. I know some people who come little by little. As they grow, as they mature, they just understand it a little more each day, a little more each year, a little more each month. There's no wrong path. But I want to assure you that the answer is always the same. When you ask, when did you know God was real? The answer is, I know God is real. And I have a relationship with that knowable God. Now if you have your New Life notes with you, get those out. There's a couple questions in there. And, and I'm going to refer to those in a moment. I truly believe, as we end tonight, there, and as we wrap this series up, there is a yearning in every person's heart, a yearning for a relationship with God. It presents itself in different ways, in different people. It is often fed in very negative ways, unhealthy ways, destructive ways, hurtful ways. But I believe that that yearning is to be in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, a knowable God like Paul was proclaiming. And if we are truly acting like the church, we will make it our mission to understand what people are passionate about, what people are religious about, and help them, disciple them. Move them closer to God, that God, that knowable God through Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to work a lot in the next year about discipling. Actually, we're going to make it our theme, our theme is forming, and that's really what we're going to talk about. We're actually going to probably change how we worship. I know that's scary. But we are probably going to change, especially this portion of worship, the teaching moment. We're going to try to make that much more interactive 
And we're going to try to equip each of you with tools for personal discipleship and tools to help disciple others. Because I've been struggling with the last year as I've been trying to figure out how can we disciple each other. There's not been a lot of people coming out and saying, this is how you make a disciple. They can tell us how to do church. They can tell us how to worship. They can tell us how to do a Bible study. All of those things are great. How to do mission work, how to do work for justice. All of that stuff is great. It's needed. We need to continue to do it. But what I want to be able to say after next year, at the end of 2013, is that everyone who came to New Life had an experience of being discipled and knows how to disciple one another. So to begin that, and to move from acting like the church into Mythbusters, I want to leave you with two questions, and I, I want you to think about them, I want you to ask them, I want you to discuss them with your family, with your friends. I want you to truly ruminate on them in however way is best to you. Maybe it's personal time, maybe it's journaling, uh, maybe it's while you're driving in your car, maybe it's in a conversation at McDonald's or while drinking a nice cold Coca-Cola after you go see Breaking Dawn 2, like I will, I'm sure. I've seen the other four, might as well go see this one. The first question is, when did I find, or, or excuse me, when did I know that God was real? I cross out that find. It's my spelling error, excuse me. When did I first, that's what the word was supposed to be, when did I first know God was real? When did I first know, so correct that, when did I first know God was real? Does it say find up there too? Okay. Well, you could have told me. Come on. <laughs> well, it's true, it's true. So when did I first know God, God was real? I told you I was 20 years old. I can, I can almost tell you down to the minute when it happened. I can tell you uh, specifically what that experience felt like uh, and, and, and to this day what it, what it feels like. But now, the second question is how do I know God is real today? Because you can have a moment of conversion, and I know sometimes we don't talk about that, sometimes we do, but I believe that you know, that happens either in a moment or in a lifetime. You can have a moment, a powerful moment, and people have told me there are powerful moments over the years, but if you don't continue to have moments, if you don't continue to experience God, that moment's meaningless. If you have a wonderful experience, we have a lay academy coming up, wonderful experience of teaching, uh, teaching people just how to be better lay leaders, better lay servants, better lay ministers. Uh, we have Walk to Emmaus coming up, a wonderful time of spiritual renewal, wonderful time of growth. We have a Bible study or a, a small group study coming about, about five ways to grow your faith. If you have that great experience, if you have a mountaintop experience, if you have a passionate experience, and then a year later, you cannot see where God is in your life doesn't really matter because God is in your life every single day doing things for you every single day every moment right now whether you know it or not and part of coming closer to Christ is understanding and seeing those God moments every day and knowing that God is real because at the end of the day your families and friends and everyone who you will witness to like Jesus Christ calls us to do what they really want to know what they really have a yearning for 
is how can I know that God too? And if God's not real to you, don't expect it to be real to them. And if God's not real to you yet, that's okay. Stick around. I hope, I pray every day that God will become real to you in a very real way, in a tangible way, in a way you can taste and see and smell. Not just in a lofty philosophical way, although we can talk about that. I have lots of books. But in a way that you can actually say, yes, I know God, and this is how. Amen. I'm going to call the band up as we transition to the final part of our worship experience. Again, I thank you for uh, being here. I thank you for worshiping. I thank you for being a wonderful community of faith. Uh, We are young in our faith. We are not even celebrating a year of ministry yet. Uh, But there is so much potential. Uh, And we're going to be asking some questions here in the next couple months. Uh, The questions are going to be uh, akin to uh, where, where, or how would you describe new life? What do you uh, believe new life is about? Uh, Where do you see yourself in new life? Where do you see us going into the future? We're going to actually be asking some of these questions because we're an infant. We are, we are still a child as a church. Our sponsor congregation has been around for 175 years. They've had time to ask themselves those questions. Who are we? What do we believe in? Who are we as a church? And where are we going? Although they're continuing to ask those questions. We as infants don't have a history to look back to. We have less than a year of ministry. So we have to ask, just as an infant does, who am I? What's my place in this world? And where am I going? And those are good questions to ask, exciting questions to ask. Uh, so be involved in that. Think about that. Pray about that. Uh, and true, hopefully, truly, we can come together and hear where the Holy Spirit is guiding us, where the Holy Spirit is carrying us, uh, and we can be changed because of it. Uh, so uh, in a moment, the ushers will uh, come and collect the offering. Again, I thank you for uh, all of the uh, gifts that you've given, uh, the ability to... Uh, pay for that wonderful meal from our family and friends uh, fund uh, so that we did not take that for money that our sponsor congregation gave us. That would have been a little awkward, I think. Um, so that's all taken care of, and I thank, thank you for that. Uh, and I thank you for all your continuing gifts. We will be talking in the fall in October and November about the expectations for next year, uh, what we need to do as a church, uh, and how we are being helped by other congregations and what that will look like. Uh, but we will continue to talk about that now. Let us now be in a time of prayer, coming before God with those concerns on our hearts, those joys, but also that pain, those questions, and maybe simple questions as, how do I know God is real? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day. Yes, it rained, but even rain is beautiful. We thank you for a wonderful time to meet, a quiet Labor Day weekend. We thank you for an opportunity to be in worship with you, to be alive for you, to be well with you. We ask now that you be with all of us gathered here, that you fill us with your Spirit as we enter into your presence in this time of praise, that you allow us to just move our hearts and minds towards you, with you, completely, be part of you, and be your children. We ask now that you be with all of those who need your love. 
those who are here, those who are outside of our walls, those who are gone for the weekend or had been gone for the summer. We ask that you shed them your grace and your love. We ask that you be with all of those who need your special care, those who lead in our world, in our nation, in our communities, in our churches. Help them all follow your will that you may truly, truly guide us all towards your kingdom. We ask that you be with all of those who serve us, those who serve us in big ways, our men and women overseas, those at home, firefighters, police officers, those who are working on our lawns, those who are working at our favorite restaurant, those who bag our groceries, those who we don't even recognize but who serve us on a regular basis. Help us become servants to them and to all people. Lord, we ask that you be with your church, that you be with your holy Catholic church, but you be with new life as well. Truly help us understand who we are in the midst of this large, one universal church. Help us to understand what our gifts and graces are that we can truly do effective ministry where we are, when we are, with who we are. That we can truly help people experience new life. This community and our communities may experience new life. Almighty God, we pray in this, your holy name, with your Holy Spirit and your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.